Hello and welcome. I'm Katrina. I'm the Science Communications Intern for the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute. Today I'm joined by Dr. Rama Namani, a senior earth scientist at NASA Ames Research Center. Dr. Namani's work focuses on ecological forecasting and collaborative earth science. Hi Rama, it's great to talk to you. Could you please just introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about the research that you do? Yeah, my name is Rama Namani, actually Rama Krishna Namani, and everybody calls me Rama Namani. And uh, I'm a research scientist at uh, Ames Research Center, and I do uh, global monitoring, basically, you know, uh, monitoring of the Earth from satellites. And I also work with the, the supercomputing center here, where we analyze all the data that NASA collects about the Earth. So how did you get into science? Like, did you always know that you wanted to be a scientist or was there something or someone that inspired you? I, you know, science is, I never really occurred to me that I would be a scientist when I was growing up. You know, I grew up uh, in a small village in India and my dad is a farmer. So I always thought that I would be a farmer, but he didn't think that I would be a good farmer because I was just, uh, too weak, so he thought I would be better off as a teacher or something like that. So that's you know. So he sent me to school, and uh, and and then I went to college, and that's where I met uh, this one professor who just came back from the United States. Uh, he would uh, he would tell us about the U.S. He went to Kansas State University in uh, Lawrence, Kansas. Every time, they, you know, during our class, he would say something about the U.S. You know, what a great country it is. You know, all about these uh, uh, straight highways, you know, big cars, you know. and 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 I, I guess you know that's kind of got me interested in uh, going to the U.S. Not about science. I just want to go to the U.S. and uh, didn't care about what I studied and how I got there. So, and then after that, I would apply to all sorts of universities, you know, in, in the U.S., you know, see if they would let me come in. And uh, they would, you know, give me admission, but nobody would give me financial aid. So, and then it took me about six years, and finally, this young professor in Montana. So, he said, yeah, you can come in, you know, I have... Uh, and uh, some work that you could do for me. And then uh, that's how I ended up in Montana, of all the places. Yeah, from India, and I ended up in, uh, in Missoula, Montana. So, and this guy he just started his career. Like, he was 29 years old. And I was doing some, uh, some work for him, you know, going up into the mountains and collecting some weather data and things like that. But that's not what I thought I, I wanted, you know. Coming from India, going into the woods in Montana is not something that I, I thought I would be doing. <laughs> so anyway, and um, after a year, and I told him that, you know, I, you know I'm not interested in, uh, in this type of thing. So he said, oh, you know, I just got this small grant from NASA, you know, looking at uh, satellite data. So, but, you know, if you want to work on this, you got to learn computer programming and, and then uh, image processing and things like that. So he sent me to NASA Ames back in 1985 to get training in uh, image analysis. So that was my, you know, 
uh, initiation into NASA research. Yeah, so, yeah, and uh, for the next four years, I worked with uh, an engineer here, Dave Peterson, and uh, he used to be the, the division chief at Earth Sciences here. And he and my mentor in Missoula that I've been, you know, working with them you know, for many, many years after that. So, and I went back and I finished my PhD and then I stayed there as a, as a faculty for a while. And just when Dave Peterson, he was about to retire, he recruited me to come to make NASA Ames. So that's how I ended up, you know, here. But I've been associated with NASA for about uh, 35 years, you know, since I was a grad student, basically. Yeah. So it has been fun, you know. But I, I wouldn't say that I planned, you know, any of this or I had passion for this. It just, you know, one thing led to the other. And then, you know, here I am <laughs> after 35 years. So you mentioned supercomputing and the NASA Earth Exchange. Could you tell me a little bit about what that involves and how that came onto your radar? So the satellites collect a lot of data and I focused my entire graduate work on one 150 by 150 square kilometer area in Montana. So and we would do all sorts of uh, analysis on that particular scene. So. You know, I spent four years on this one little area. And by the time you know, I left Montana, we were processing the whole planet every day. And then when I came into NASA Ames, and then we had the supercomputer, and then we actually expanded that whole process, um, not only analyzing just one satellite, but multiple satellites. And, and, and you know, from gigabytes to terabytes, you know, now, you know, we can do amazing things with the supercomputer we have. So that's basically how we started NES. You know, when I was in Montana, you know, we had to come to NASA Ames you know, to, to analyze the data. Um, and then things changed because in Montana, you know, we were able to build enough computing to process. But even that wasn't enough when we had multiple satellites. So you had, you know, one satellite, and from one to three, and then now we have you know, 20 different satellites. So you really need something like NEX you know, to, to process. And not only that, when I was a student, you know, we had maybe 50 scientists you know, doing this kind of work, but now there are 5,000 scientists. So imagine all 5,000 downloading all the data into their computers, you know, it's just a total waste of, uh, of money. So that's what NEX does, you know, brings everybody back to a place like NASA Ames. Just like when I was a grad student and I came to do the work here. So we're back to the same type of situation because there is so much data out there, you cannot bring all the data to your computer. So you have to go where the, where the data are. What is it that makes a computer a supercomputer? Is it just the processing power? Yeah, basically, you know, especially Ames is uh, kind of a pioneer in this. You know, they have been doing uh, supercomputing for, I don't know, maybe 30 years. Uh, so uh, their focus used to be on uh, on aerodynamic simulation and you know, how the, and the rockets and the airplanes, you know, how they behave, you know, and during the flight. And, and then 
slowly the same principles were being applied to modeling the climate. So climate is also kind of a fluid dynamic, you know, how the water vapor and the energy, everything interacts with the system. So, uh, but Earth observations weren't really the focus of NASA Ames. You know, they weren't doing any Earth observations. But slowly in the last 10 years, they started doing more data analytics also, you know. So that's where NES comes in, you know, NES brought that data analytics to the supercomputing, you know. So they had a lot of processing power, but they did not have all the observations to analyze. Okay? So they were using the processing power mainly for modeling. Simulation modeling is something, you know, you have a, a complex codes and you run, you know, in, in many different ways. That's where you need a lot of processing power. Um, but data analysis is different. You know, data analysis is blending data from multiple satellites and then looking at things in different ways. So you need to bring data together, but also you need to move data in and out of the computer really fast. And that's where the technology comes in. How fast can you bring the data into the computer, process it, and then spit it out? You know, So that is, that's where NAX focuses on. So you were talking about the kind of 150 square kilometers that you were looking at in Montana and you mentioned climate modeling. What kinds of things is it that you're looking at in your research? I think the, the you know, in the last 30 years, the most fascinating thing for me is uh, how we can use all the data that we collect to, to look at the earth how it changes from hour to hour, day to day, and you know, season to season, you know, year to year, and over the long long term. So in the, in the last 30 years, we have published many, you know, papers on how the earth is changing. The first time that we looked at the, the earth, you know, over many years is back in, in the 90s, we published a paper looking at the Arctic areas. And all of a sudden we found out that things were getting greener sooner in the season, you know. Normally, plants start growing in the about, you know, June, okay, in, in the high latitudes. But we were observing they started growing earlier and earlier. So that is a clear indication of climate change. So when things get warmer and the plants start growing earlier, and that's what we, we, we found out. But that was the first time that anybody saw in, in data that the large parts of the earth are actually reacting to the climate change already. This was back in, in 91. So a long time ago, we already saw the signals that the earth is responding to the anthropogenic you know, climate change. So that's, uh, it, that has been fascinating. And then you know, from there, you know, we looked at uh, deforestation and then we looked at how agriculture has changed over the, in the many years. Like in India, for example, there's an incredible expansion of agriculture and mainly through irrigation, and, uh, which looks good on the surface, but it also uses a lot of water. If you're depleting the groundwater in the short term and everything looks good, but over the long term, it could be pretty bad. So stuff like that, you know, I never thought I would get into. And, and that's what is so cool about working with satellite data that you don't know where you 
you know, you find interesting patterns. It could be in Amazon, it could be in the Arctic, or it could be in China or in India. You know, you just go wherever there are interesting patterns and then dig deeper and why you're seeing, you know, what you're seeing and what is causing it and how that particular mechanism is going to change in the future. How do you predict what's going to change? That's the hard part, you know. Uh, in, in some ways, not much has changed in the last 30 years. You know, we have more and more sophisticated models, but still there are so many unknowns you know, that, uh, you know, you can make broad predictions like the Earth is going to get warm. And, and, but after that, you know, how the life is going to react to that warming you know, is, is, is difficult. I think we just don't have enough knowledge about how, you know, uh, communities and, and life in general would uh, exploit the new opportunities, you know. People talk about extinctions and, and uh, stuff like that has been happening throughout history, you know. And so some species goes away, another species comes in and then exploits the situation. So I, I don't know how much we can predict, but we know we had to be prepared for extreme, like, you know, like what happened in Texas, you know, with the freeze. I don't think anybody would have predicted that they wouldn't have power and they would be freezing to death, you know, for days. But now we know that we had to be ready for those things. Yeah, the rate of change and the sort of variety of what's happening is quite alarming. And there are so many effects that counterbalance each other. It's just such a complicated problem. Absolutely. I think that the main thing is to be aware that, you know, think about the fires you know, that are happening in California. In, historically, California used to burn a lot. Um, so natu naturally, this is a fire-prone system but we suppress the fires for many, many years. But nature has a way of getting it back, you know. So now we have bigger and bigger fires that we cannot put out anymore. So the technology is not there to put out these mega fires. What do you think has been the biggest impact from your research? I don't mean like grants and papers, even though those are nice as well, but has there been any maybe like policy changes or maybe some of your analysis has been used more widely, anything like that? I don't think, you know, there has been any policies, but, you know, most of what we do is provide uh, evidence for things that people think will happen. And people have known climate is going to change with in response to CO2 concentrations going up ice, you know, our, you know, sea ice is going to melt, you know, sooner, or, you know, plants start growing earlier, and, you know, and, and things like that, people have been saying, but it is hard to provide proof, you know, on the ground, you know, because you can study a small area and you can say things have changed, but to, to put that in the context of a, a global scale is, is hard. You know, what happens locally may or may not be related to what is happening globally. But what we do actually provides that, that connection because we can map every part of the earth. So, you know, we can actually stitch everything together and then provide a bigger picture. It's such important research. You mentioned that you never thought you would end up doing this for your job. What would you do if you didn't do this? 
Oh, I ideally, I I wouldn't mind being a fox, really. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why my dad chose, you know, that you know, thought that I wouldn't be a good farmer, but I probably would have been a good farmer. I, I still, you know, like to be a farmer, really. Does your family still have farmland then? Actually, I, I sold my farm because I was the only son, you know, and so uh, that was the hard part because, you know, when I left and after my uh, my father passed away, so we, we had to get rid of it. So I, you know, I, I wish I hadn't, you know, because that was in the family for hundreds of years. Yeah. yeah. So is there part of you that wishes that that was the path that you took? <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, but, you know, I've come to accept that, you know, life evolves and, you know, changes. But I never expected that, you know, I would end up in, in a place like Montana and, you know, things like that. That's, uh, you know, here, it's, it's kind of interesting, you know, people have, uh, they, they feel uh, kind of a passion, you know, they, they have interest and they pursue over, over multiple years, decades and all. But I, I always felt like that I kind of fell into things more than anything else, you know, just, so I made the best out of whatever I had at that time. Yeah. You're not the first person that's told me that. And I, I feel like that myself as well. So. Don't worry. <laughs> What's the one thing that you wish everybody knew about your research? I just don't think people uh, understand the value of uh, long-term observations. You know, why we need to keep on monitoring and the Earth. You know, people see, you know, on Google Earth and things like that, you know, which is fine. Um, but what we need to have are these uh, data on how things are changing, you know, over time. Then only you can actually put things in the, in the context. You know, let's say when you look at Amazon, for example, you, know, you see how it was in 1975, how in 85, in 95, and, and all of a sudden you can't believe your eyes, you know, what's happening. And that is happening all over the planet, not just in Amazon, you know, ice is melting faster, you know, things are getting greener sooner. All those things are possible only by, you know, by continuing to monitor. And I used to work with this uh, famous guy, uh, Charles Keeling. You know, he's the guy that started the whole climate change, you know. He started the CO2 observations in uh, Hawaii and back in 1958, but single-handedly, he kept the observations going. And even though he couldn't get funding to continue the observations, but he would put his own money into, into you know, collecting observations. Wow. Only because of him that we have this data, you know, that is, is undisputed in the evidence that, you know, that things are changing. And so I think that the public needs to understand that, you know, we need we need to continue these observations, you know. People think that, yeah, okay, you know, climate is changing, it is getting warmer, and then let's move on kind of thing. I don't think that's the way we should pursue these things. You know, we should keep at it and then and then see how fast it is changing, where it is changing, and, and, and try to understand, you know, why 
you know, why and how, you know, we can address the situation. I'd never heard that story before. I can't believe somebody was putting their own money into this research. Do you think that enough is being spent on this now? I, you know, now, yeah, I think we, we are getting better, you know, because of the seriousness, you know, we are, you know, obviously there is never enough money for science, you know, and so, <laughs> but you had to be judicious about, you know, what, what to measure and then, you know, and NASA in general seems to be really good at coming up with new technologies, but what NASA is not good at is, is continuing the observations because they are more a technology agency. They like to build new things, you know, new sensors and all. But somebody has to, you know, somebody has to continue the observations. So how long typically, I, I guess it maybe varies quite a lot, but how long would these observations normally be happening for? Well, you know, when you launch a satellite, usually, you know, it's uh, for uh, about five to seven years. Okay. okay? And the lifespan of the of a satellite. But uh, you need observations for 30, 40, 50 years. So that means you need to launch multiple satellites to continue those observations. It's really difficult to make the case. So let's say, you know, you launched a satellite in, uh, in 2000, okay? And then you collected the data for 10 years and then 2030 comes. And then you tell Congress that, oh, you want to launch, you know, the same satellite again to continue the observation. And then they say, but why? You know, we have done that 10 years ago. You know, let's, let's do something different. <laughs> and that's not necessarily the best course of action, really. You know, you also want to continue some of these key observations. Sure. Yeah. I think those were maybe the last sort of set questions I had. I'm quite interested. You mentioned that you were doing this field work to begin with in Montana and you didn't enjoy it. Are you much more of like a computer person or do you wish you could still go out and do field observations? You know, <laughs> coming coming from India and uh, working in the, in, in the woods, you don't go into the woods in a place like India. You know, there are a lot of snakes and tigers and all that stuff. It's just that's the last thing that I would do. It's just to, you know, go collect data in in the forest. <laughs> no, I think the only reason that I agreed is because I want to come to the U.S. I can't imagine there's much dangerous in Montana, though. Or is that a stupid thing to say? I've never been there. Maybe there's bears or something. <laughs> I, you know, they, I, but this is what my mentor used to say that, you know, don't worry about the animals and all. Those, those are the last things you need to worry about. It is the other people that you need to be worried about. If you see somebody <laughs> else in the woods, you should be really worried about. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, I, I never felt comfortable, you know. Yeah, going into the woods. And I remember I would go with my colleagues and uh, I would stay in the truck most of the time, you know, and then they would go collect the observations. <laughs> I would be writing down <laughs> and taking the big notes and all that stuff. That's a good system. Yeah, well, you know, I think it's, it's something that you grow up with, you know, because when I grew up, you know, there were always snakes and all that stuff. So, you know, you have this in your head that, you know, 
then you don't know what is under that stump there, you know, on the ground. Yeah. So luckily, you know, that's why I, I felt lucky that uh, that he had this project from NASA and then we got into more computers and data analysis and all that stuff. Yeah, I, I don't think I would have lasted if I had to do <laughs> that, that kind of work. <laughs> I guess, is there anything else that you want to share about your work or anything you think I should have asked you that I've not? I think, you know, that's something that I learned about, you know, doing science. It's kind of fascinating, you know, you just don't know what you, what you, where you end up with, you know, if you have you know, kind of an open mind, you know, you just, you kind of meander, you know, some people dedicate their whole lives to a particular topic, you know, like this guy I was telling you about, you know, he spent his entire life just measuring CO2 in the atmosphere. I think, I think, he's pretty lucky, you know, to pursue that single-mindedly. And, but I think a lot of the people that I know, you know, we kind of, including my, my own mentor, you know, my own mentor, in some ways, he is my real, real world example. You know, he used to measure, you know, how leaves work. He, he would put clips onto the leaves and then measure things, you know, when, they're losing water, you know, uh, you know, things like that. And from there, you know, he, you know, he saved the whole planet. Uh, so he probably taught me that there are really no limits to how you can do science. You know, you, it doesn't mean, you know, just because you're trained in this one thing, you know, that you have to do that rest of your life. You know, you just, uh, well, whatever comes, you know, I, Take it and then move, move on. You know, uh, into bigger and better things. Yeah, I, I must say, you know, that's one thing that I learned about coming to the U.S. is that how, how open people are in terms of pursuing a new thing. And this is something that I haven't found in India, and partly because you know there are not as many opportunities, obviously, but also the culture itself is kind of constraining, you know, that they, they kind of uh, put you in a certain, in a box that, you know, you're going to be a mechanical engineer or, you know, that's, you know, that's the path that you follow. But in the U.S., it's just, you know, there is no, there is no path here. <laughs> yeah, you create your own path. I remember when I went to Montana, I met a friend. He was 60 years old at that time when I met him. And he just retired and they came back to school to study something completely new. <laughs> and I thought he was, he was nuts, you know, to, to start school again. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you have any advice for people who maybe want to get into your fields? Yeah, absolutely. And you know, I think that now, you know, now more than ever, I mean, this field to me, it can use a lot of different types of talent because when you look at uh, changing climate and not only you know, understanding how it is changing but uh, imagine all the impacts that you know we're going to be facing you know whether it's fires and floods and hurricanes you know how to build the, the right infrastructure you know how to create the right type of uh, financial incentives i mean there are endless opportunities but everything starts with the, the basic understanding of how how the earth functions. So I, I think more than any other time, and I, I feel like 
I've been in the right, you know, field after 40 years nearly. <laughs> That's certainly an important one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, here's to being open-minded and carving out your own path. All right. Thank you so much. And yeah, nice meeting you. And you. I really enjoy speaking to you and thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me today.